Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Andy McKeon, Global Creative Director at Safety Culture, actually the newly appointed Creative Director. Is that right? Welcome, Andy. Thanks. I'm glad I could finally make it to connect and get on your podcast. Yeah, just signed up just getting on board so i'm excited to be back in australia and working for a australian technology company with global aspirations now we actually go back quite a long way <laughs> and, and i always say to people to the last century um but let's keep our conversation this century because i have tried we have tried a couple of times to connect and have this conversation and i'll say up front the reason being that I absolutely admire your career of going from advertising to into the you know, sort of the world of Silicon Valley and now into boardrooms. And I'd love to explore some of that with you today. Yeah, absolutely. Is I mean, it planned though? I mean, I think the consistent elements are I'm curious, I, I kind of, I like to learn and I like to be in the middle of the action. I don't necessarily have to be the center of attention, but I like to kind of be in there. So I guess I kind of work to position myself to end up in interesting places and do interesting things because I, I guess it sounds more fun than the opposite. <laughs> doing boring, going to boring <laughs> places and doing boring things. You use that word curious because it is a word that's often associated with creative people. Was that something that has always been part of your nature? Do you remember as a kid being that curious kid? I think I was always kind of energetic and passionate and got bored easily. So I think I was always kind of out there looking for new and, you know, new things, new stimuli, um, new locations. I was lucky enough to travel a lot as a kid. Um, my uh, my family traveled a lot. My dad was an importer. So we used to go along on business trips to Europe and the US and stuff like that. And, um, and then when I was a teenager and early 20 something, I was a horrible but enthusiastic ski racer. So I got to travel around Europe and the US and do that. So I guess I was kind of used to being on the move and being around different and interesting people. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, uh, when you get to that point of having to make a career choice, often it used to be that advertising was one of the few careers or areas that you could go to if you were that sort of curious, interested, you know. To your point, you didn't want to go for the boring jobs. You wanted to do something that was exciting and advertising was that choice, wasn't it? Yeah, I've actually been talking uh, to a few people about this because I felt like when I was growing up, you know, like the obviously the traditional smart kids went into law or medicine. Um, and I guess my brain didn't really work like that. Maybe I wasn't smart enough to do that. Uh, it just those kind of more traditional things didn't really interest me. I studied economics at university so I could keep skiing. That was kind of the deal I had with my parents. Um, and I guess it was a good general degree to have, although I clearly had no interest in, you know, being in a, an accountant or a banker or something like that. Although I look at some banking friends now and I think that probably would have been a pretty smart decision back in the day, but the kind of modern day banker didn't really exist back then. So I think I kind of stumbled across 
yeah, advertising. And, you know, I think back in the day, it was a place where it was super interesting. There was a lot of money around there. You know, you felt like you were a, a important member of the economy, I guess. But now there's a lot more choices, aren't there? You know, the idea of just going into advertising these days. If, if you were your younger self then, you know, 10, 20 years ago, now, what areas would get you interested, do you think? I mean, I think if I was younger and just coming out of the pipeline now of education, I'd be interested in the technology startup world. I feel like you can have a lot of the benefits of advertising, you know, starting with a blank sheet of paper and creating something. I think that that's a really you know, satisfying feeling, building something that's tangible. Um, and it seems like you can have a lot of that experience now, but the infrastructure around technology and startups didn't really exist, even I don't think 10 years ago, or was right in its infancy. So I feel like now you've got all these great examples, you know, you've got more creative companies like Canva, I guess, and then more kind of SaaS, um, B2B ones like Safety Culture or Atlassian, people like that. Um, you know, I would jump on something like that. Yeah. So let's go back to advertising. Sure. Because uh, you started off in uh, Melbourne yep. working at Cleminger, wasn't it? Cleminger BBDO? Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what first got you interested in going overseas? Because, you know, it was, it was very almost traditional or expected that if you were a good talent that you would go overseas. You know, there was still that mindset of, yeah, you can be the best creative person in Australia, but why not go and see how well you could be in the US or the UK? What got you motivated to go overseas? I, I, so I did award school and I actually remember being in award school and I didn't do particularly well. I think I was just an average student in award school. Um, but I remember, you know, saying that I wanted to go to the US and uh, I think it was a woman, Flavia Mesden, uh, said to me, she's like, hang on, buddy, you know, like just try and get through award school for first before you start thinking about going to the US to go to advertising and everything else. But I think I already had it in my mind. I had traveled the US pretty extensively skiing, ski racing and training and doing that. And then I did a ridiculous trip with a bunch of friends in a $750 van where we, I think, visited 34 states in about six months. Um, good stories were uh, <laughs> generated from that trip. So I think I always just wanted to do that. And um, Jim Riswold, who's one of the partners at Wyden Kennedy came out to Melbourne and did a presentation. And at the end of it, he said, anyone wants to take me for a drink, I'm up for it. And I was just a young punk and I just assumed that everyone else would take him out for it, but no one else did. So I volunteered and took him out and um, had a very funny night with a bunch of random friends who weren't in advertising and we kind of built that rapport. And then um, I actually targeted Goodby Silverstein and Partners, BBD in New York and Wyden and Kennedy as agencies I wanted to work at um, and then I wrote to them all and said I'm coming from Australia and I want to work for free for a week and they all said yes so I went and I did that I traveled with a girlfriend who was not impressed because I didn't really tell her that part of the plan so <laughs> I was like leaving her in the morning and coming back late at night and working on ads and that was not really her vision of a, a good holiday so um, sorry <laughs> about that. But out of that, I actually ended up working at Wyden and Goodby and got offered a job at BBD in New York. So um, eventually over my career. Well, interesting because uh, you targeted those three. Why? 
I mean, you know, I used to sit in Australia and look at um, Archive Magazine and Shots Reel and, you know, follow award shows and things like that. And I just thought they were doing the the best work in the US at the time that I really admired. And I just kind of wanted to get over there and, I guess, learn from the best. So I know it was fairly early in your career when you did that. but And, and you, as you said, you'd already had the experience of the US culture. So it wasn't like you were going to experience culture shock, I guess. But was there anything that was sort of dramatically different or surprising about working in a, one of these hotshot US agencies compared to your experience of working in advertising here? What, I mean, Wyden was fascinating and I still think that is the greatest agency in the world um, and probably the greatest job I've ever had. Um, and what was interesting about it, it felt like, in Australia, advertising was cool. Like the cool kids did it. Um, at Wyden, it wasn't particularly that way. Like it was in Portland, Oregon, which it's a bit cooler now. If you've seen Portlandia, it's actually a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> it was probably the equivalent of Hobart back in the day. Um, and no one was cool there or anything like that. And they, they wouldn't go to the cool bars and no one was dating all the models or anything like that. Um, it was kind of, you know, just dorky people in performance fleece but they put all their passion and energy into the work. So no one was trying to be a rock star. It was more just trying to do amazing work. So that was kind of a, a bit of a difference, I noticed. And then it was a bit a bit more kind of like open-minded in a way. Like remember there was a guy who used to walk around in, in like mesh half tops and had painted fingernails and everything, you know, like super flamboyant and just no one said anything. And I just thought if that was in Australia, I don't know, it would have been... Commented on or... Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and, exactly. Or made feel awkward or, you know. Yeah, so it was people just kind of allowed to be them, be themselves. And it was... Widen's an interesting place where they get people that maybe might be too eccentric or a bit, you know, off for a regular kind of big network role, but they go there and they're just loved and protected and they're able to do the best work of their life. Like they remove all the barriers and the clients that go there actually are looking for work. Like no one's trying to do cool ads to win awards or anything like that. They're trying to do great ads because they actually think that they work. Mm. It's a very different starting point. Now, I had this uh, conversation uh, with Rob Campbell, who was a strategist at Wyden Kennedy in Shanghai. You know, and, and he didn't actually articulate it that way. But, you know, if you know Rob, he wears, um, uh, what are those, uh, Birkenstocks with uh-huh. socks, you yeah. know, and he's not, <laughs> not exactly sartorial splendour, but he absolutely fitted in. And, you know, he does nothing but speak well, you know, fondly of his time with Wyden Kennedy. So it's interesting. Do you think that's a culture that's built into the company? And does it come down from... Uh, from the top, from Dan and and the senior management? I mean, I think it's a function of that. I mean, they're, Dan's an incredible person. Um, yeah. People used to say it was just like, you know, having this magical school principal or something like that. And we used to have these meetings that had a little basketball gym and these seats that would fold out, these kind of bleachers. And I was just so excited to hear Dan talk about anything, just so wise and mindful. And he wasn't playing the game. You know, he wasn't trying to be famous or anything like that. Um, he just really believed that the best way to sell more stuff was to do work that really stood out and connected with people. Um, 
That, and you've had the opportunity, as you said, you worked at three of the really top creative agencies in the world, all in the US. What was your fondest memory of that? I think what was, I mean, I'll probably go back to Widen again, and I would just say that the talent you were surrounded with, you know, the people that were there at the time were some of the world's best creatives and they might have just even been juniors or you know kind of mid-tier people at the time but the person at reception you know might have been an amazing artist in their own right there was a girl who I believe she was a studio art buyer um, Janet Weiss and then I remember one time I was looking at Rolling Stone magazine a couple of years later and she was in there she had one of the top albums of the century and she was the drummer for the band Slater Kinney so there were just you were just surrounded by all these people that were smarter than you, and they just made the work better. Like, you know, I was a writer. I had an amazing, you know, group of art directors that I worked with, and they just took his stuff and made it better. And then the creative directors would just plus it again, and the people in the studio, and then they would, you know, the production company could get the best directors on the phone, and shoot your stuff. And I felt like a lot of work, and it's you know my fault, and it's probably how it is for a lot of creatives is you know, your work doesn't necessarily turn out as well as you would hope it would when it's at its kind of concept stage. But I felt like pretty much everything there turned out better than you could have dreamed because you had all these the amazing The Midas touch. Yeah, everyone was adding gold yeah. to, the, to the concept. Yeah, yeah. so that, that was pretty magical. A lot of people um, talk about, you know, the importance of diversity and I get from the way you're describing it that it's, Diversity that goes beyond things like, you know, cultural diversity or gender diversity and things like that, that, that it sounds like Wyden almost created a community that was diverse in sort of creativity. You know, people that were great at design or great at art or great at music, you know, that, that the diversity was actually just drawing people that were incredibly creative in their own right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one thing that was kind of special and unusual about it was the location. Again, it'd be like having these really interesting world-class people all stuck in a place like Hobart. So you didn't have your friends from high school there or from university, like family members. So, and most people I think were probably aged around 27 to 33, kind of in that sweet spot. Like you'd been around, you'd done enough ads to get hired at Widen. Um, You weren't expensive you'd still like work all weekend and all night and all that kind of stuff. And so your work mates were your whole family in life. And yeah. During that period, what was your favourite campaign or favourite piece of work? Do you have one or is there too many? I mean, I don't know that was anything that I did necessarily. I mean, some of the fun stuff which I, I did, which I enjoyed, was uh, Nike Australian Open Tennis campaign. Yeah. So I actually got back. Uh, to come back to Australia and shot that with Alan White, an Australian director um, who's living in the US and worked with Linda Knight on that. And we just created a lot of, you know, I think work that I really enjoyed and kind of, I think it stands the test of time, but there were so many amazing campaigns, you know, all the, the big Nike people, you know, Jordan was at his height. You had Agassi, Sampras, Lance Armstrong, Tiger Wood, like all the ads that came out of that were ridiculous. But then there was stuff like, um, Miller Genuine Draft and yep. Miller High Life work. And I think the Miller High Life work, um, you know, Jeff Kling and a few other people that worked on that. And there's so much work, I think, that kind of its genesis is that. 
you know, as interesting guy insights and, and everything else. And there's so much beer work that you can kind of hear that voice in there that, you know, probably inspired generations of people. Hmm. Um, what made you get to the point of wanting to jump across to working inside what would be considered a client site, right? <laughs> I mean, today they'd call it an in-house agency, but it wasn't really, was it? Or was it? And so, I'm talking about Apple. Yeah. And, and also then you went on to Facebook. So I, I guess I got to a point, you know, I worked for nearly 20 years in agencies around the world. I don't look that old. Oh, I don't feel a day over 700. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I'd kind of, I'd worked at those three agencies um, and I'd, I'd worked in New York and I started my own agency, which was, you know, fun, but I didn't really make any money doing that. You know, I judged award shows. I just think I was kind of over it and I've like been there, done that. So I was looking around for something else. I was like, do I become a train driver? That seems kind of like nice and peaceful or, you know, do I go do an MBA or become a banker? Or I was really scratching around and then... um. I was fascinated by technology and the digital side of it, but I hadn't really explored it because I think there was still that big digital divide back in the day and the kind of the glory and the money was in traditional advertising. Um, so I was curious about that and I was like, you know, what? I just want to go work for Steve Jobs. So I went and I moved back to America and worked at Cupertino and was running the, one of the people running the internal marketing communications team, which is pretty big team i think then it was maybe about 400 people wow i think now it's about that's a decent size agency yeah i think now it's about 600 um and i just thought it just seemed like more fun to work for steve jobs than than working for me because i was running my own agency (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah because for a long time apple had their own agency what um media arts lab or mal mal yeah. yeah so so what was that like what was you know so Mel was set up and that was a relationship that Steve had with Lee Clow. Yeah. And Mel basically did 30-second TV ads, magazine and print. And then the internal agency did kind of like longer format things like um, launching all the hardware and software, iPhones, iPads, all that kind of stuff, or new versions of iOS. Or um, one of the things I worked on, which was pretty fun, was the launch of Siri. Mm-hmm. So Siri was actually a company that Apple um, acquired. So then, you know, got to meet with all the engineers, try and work out what Siri was. And then Apple was really good about really focusing on the benefits of the consumer. Mm-hmm. So I also worked on Microsoft's advertising, and that was more about just like product features and just more and more stuff you could do. Um, and then Apple was more like, let's start with the consumer and work backwards that way. So kind of unpacking Siri and putting it into a way people could relate to and understand and get excited about so it was it was pretty fascinating time to be there especially you know when steve was still around because mm. there's um there's a few stories about uh steve jobs you know and and one of them uh was an agency told me a media agency told me that uh when he he flew to new york and he wanted to be taken around and be shown the actual outdoor sites in new york city when they launched um, uh, Apple Music, <laughs> you know, and he actually wanted to see the, the which particular sites and to make sure that they were the right sites based on, you know, viewability and the buildings around them. I mean, that sort of level of, you know, detail from someone who is the CEO 
of, of such an organisation. It's just unbelievable. I mean, I would know many uh, CEOs that would uh, even bother doing that. They'd delegate it to someone oh, else. So, I mean, there's a lot in that. So Steve was the greatest creative director, I believe, that's ever lived. He was involved in every part of the company. Um, so it was really interesting the way he had his week set up. So he had different days dedicated to different parts of the company and Wednesday was a marketing day. Um, so he'd only deal with marketing on a Wednesday. So um, my boss would go meet with him every Wednesday and they would kind of run through everything. And Steve would, he'd choose the voiceovers. There, there's a lot of funny, crazy stories I could tell, but like um, he liked to see everything finished. He didn't like to look at animatics or read scripts or anything like that. So people would go out and shoot like a whole lot of different campaigns just to present to him to get his approval or not. And then if he'd approve it, then they'd go back and usually like remake it for even more money. Like, you know, they'd just spend millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, but I guess the company's now worth nearly or over $2 trillion. Yeah. So you can kind of get away with it. But there's there's so many stories. Like there's another one with Chicago. Um, they were trying to work out the gray slate, like out the front of the Chicago Apple store. And we're out in a parking lot and someone had laid down like 50 different shades of grey. That sounds like a... <laughs> 50 shades of grey. 50 gray. shades yeah, of grey. Should shouldn't that be a book or a movie? There you go. <laughs> and then I was just thinking maybe it wasn't 50, but it was a substantial yeah. amount of... Um, options. Options for him. And he's walking up and down and then he's like, this is all bullshit. Someone get me a hose. And, you know, everyone was quite intimidated by him. So someone ran off and managed to get a hose that worked. And he's like, it's always raining in Chicago. So he like hose hosed broke. them down to see what the gray would look like when it was wet. So he was involved in that level of detail across the company. It was it was remarkable. Yeah. And, and I think that's why it's interesting when, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the number of people that use Apple as a reference point you know, they go, well, you know, if we were Apple, uh, it, and you go, no, it's not even comparable because there was something about what was created in that and the attitude and the culture, which some people could argue was dysfunctional or, you know, but it just worked. And yeah. to actually be able to replicate that in any organisation would be incredibly difficult. Yeah, you basically need him. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, I think, um, you know, they've done really well with Tim Cook kind of optimising it now, but be interesting to see how innovation goes over the next, you know, yeah. 10 years, everything else. Yeah, what is the next big leap for Apple in the future? Yeah. Um, and then you went from there. Did you go from Apple to Facebook? Or was yeah. It, yeah. And and how did that come about? Um. There's or were you just uh, looking at the um, the stock exchange and going, <laughs> which one next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was pretty lucky, I have to say. Um, the S&P. It was my economics. The S&P, which one? <laughs> it was my economics degree, you yeah. know. It had me thinking about that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I was mindfully thinking about, you know, trying to make money, I guess, which might set me apart from some creative people. But um, there was this wonderful, I was going to say woman, um, she's a really great friend of mine, Rebecca Van Dyke. So we worked together. She headed up um, the Nike account at Widening Kennedy and then she went to Apple and then she went to Facebook. So in a lot of ways, I've just been kind of following her around. Oh, right. Um, okay. 
stalker. Stalker, <laughs> Professional yeah. Professional stalker. No. <laughs> She's, uh, you know, there's the what would Jesus do? Like I'm often thinking to myself, what would Rebecca do in certain circumstances? Like she's wonderful. She's on the board of the New York Times now on Strava and she has a big job still at Facebook. Um, but I think a lot of those people who work together, and one thing I've seen is people kind of, you know, I guess creative people do it as well, but you, you kind of collect your team and then you might move from enterprise to enterprise. Um, so, for instance, a lot of people who used to work at Facebook have now gone to TikTok. So, like, a key person comes over and they might bring, you know, 20 people in their team and they kind of build it up, do it, move on to the next thing. So, Because mm. it's also another company. You know, it's a technology company, but it's also a company with a very high profile and quite a unique character as the CEO, you know, with yep. Mark Zuckerberg. D- did you find working at Facebook that that was also part of it, that the, the CEO set a quite a, a culture or an agenda for the company? Yeah. Because I mean, he's, he's reported to be quite a hands-on CEO. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to work uh, at Apple and then um, at Facebook where you've kind of got like celebrity CEOs you know, where they're not just a CEO, you know, they're rich beyond all belief and, you know, they're both Time Magazine People of the Year and everything else. So, you know, and America has a different relationship with celebrities than Australia does as well. Australia's more like, oh, you know, we're friends, we could be hanging out. In America, there's probably more reverence um, for people like that. But um, Well, there's a culture of celebrity, isn't there? The yeah. Americans actually, you know, you get almost uh, deity-like uh, status for being a celebrity, even if you're a lesser celebrity. <laughs> yeah, it's a different thing where, yeah, Australia is a bit, have a different relationship, which... Well, we also have the tall poppy syndrome, which uh, is quite toxic for celebrities here because if they're perceived to be too big for their boots, you know, there's a backlash that sort of tries to cut them down to size. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think that that probably hasn't helped Australia in the kind of entrepreneurial world, you know, like someone will try something and it doesn't work and everyone's like, oh, I told you it wouldn't work or anything. You know, whereas Americans are just like, oh, well, I learned something from that and I'll, you know, go back at it again. So. Yeah, isn't it? Um, I was told once by an Australian guy that uh, I can't remember his name because it's a while ago. He said, unless you failed three times, no one wants to talk to you in uh, in Silicon Valley as far as, you know, get being on a board or, or whatever. Yeah, I know at Facebook we used to like to hire people that had worked at startups that hadn't started, you know. Um, you know, there's a saying around, I think, you learn more from the bad days than the good days. Yeah. So, and I think a lot of people who might have worked at a Facebook or an Apple don't understand how they're successful that just kind of happened to be in the right place at the right time. Mm. You know, you're on this rocket ship and you really, whether you turn up to work or not, doesn't really matter. Like the company's going to blow up, you know, it blow up in a good way, not, a, not in a bad way. So Andy, does that make being creative easier, do you think, if with that attitude of, you know, fail fast is another saying or, you know, you learn more from the bad days than the good? Is that a sort of culture that encourages creativity? I mean, I understand it would from a, you know, product development, coding, technology, but, you know, you're working in both companies more around marketing, comms, that type of thing. Did it extend to that area as well? Apple was very measured. Like, they only have a couple of products, really. 
like for you know a massive company yeah. it, you know they don't have a lot of options so everything was very thought out and measured and facebook was a lot more experimental like i think at any given time there's about 50 different versions of facebook running around the world um and they were just like testing different algorithms and everything else they used to or we used to experiment a lot on new zealand which always brought me a little bit of joy um but i think as a creative person you know, back in the day, you used to try and make something that was perfect and then release it to the world and then get on to the next project. Um, and there was a lot of you know, it was high stakes. You know, you, you'd make your perfect 30-second ad or 60-second ad or campaign or something. Yeah. Whereas now, I think you get a lot more at-bats. Um, you get a lot more opportunity to make stuff. You might have to make it quicker, um, you know, dirtier, faster, everything else. But that's, um, I think that's an interesting opportunity for creative people if you kind of embrace it. Mm. And um, so what happened with Facebook? I mean, how long were you at Facebook for? I was there six years. That's a long term, really, for, for Silicon Valley. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was always interesting. You know, uh, I we used to have these uh, quarterly meetings, company meetings, and I was, you know, I was probably one of the older people at the company, but I would always, like, try and get there down the front row just to kind of be in the middle of all the action. Um, it was... It felt like kind of being in Rome when the Roman Empire was like at its highest. You know, it was fascinating. Like you'd look out the window at work and you're like, that looks like Jay-Z. I'm like, oh, that is Jay-Z. <laughs> or like Prince Charles would walk past or, you know, because it was so important and so relevant to so many people from celebrities, you know, to companies. Politicians. Politicians. Yeah, totally. Like, you know, I was at work one day and I saw Malcolm Turnbull. I was like, oh, get Malcolm and went and got a photo. Um which is just kind of fun. So, yeah, everyone was really trying to work out how to utilise it. And um, it was a very powerful tool. And I think people are now kind of woken up to the, the power that these platforms have. Um, but, you know, eight years ago, something I when I joined 2012, you know, it was still not really understood. And I even just remember being in a meeting with Zuck and he's like, you know what, we're going to become a mobile company because Facebook was a desktop you know product and you know they were like huge moments and no one was actually talking about mobile like that like you know it was still pretty early days in a smartphone um so you know zach had this kind of ability to see around corners it must have been exciting yeah. totally exciting so um you mentioned earlier andy that uh, you got to the end of sort of the advertising career and you're bored and you're looking around and then you've jumped into the technology and you've had some amazing uh, positions and opportunities. Can you see, from your perspective, a sort of co the convergence that people talk about? Is there a convergence increasingly of advertising and, and technology? Do you think the tech companies, you know, people talk about the tech companies are going to ultimately dominate the advertising market, but, you know, the advertising agencies are still hanging in there. Is it becoming more blurred? I don't know if this is answering the question, but I would say one big observation, and it's probably not news to anyone really, but it's just the fragmentation that kind of developed in advertising. Mm -hmm. So just as an example, like I used to work a lot with Visa when I was at Facebook and they had BBDO New York because they're a bubble line agency. Proximity is their digital agency. MRY is their social agency because apparently social is different from digital. Um, and then uh, they had... Uh, uh, I think OMD was their media agency and then had event agencies and, and it was so fragmented. 
Um, and the agency structure was actually kind of uh, replicated at Visa. So you had all these people working in these different divisions with different bosses and reporting lines and everything else. But then they'd do something like they would sponsor the football World Cup or the soccer. And it's like, all right, what do we do? Who owns it? And no one could even wrap their head around, like, who was driving the project, like, which agency was doing it. Like, the whole thing was just such a mess. Um, so I think that that has been a real challenge for people. Or, you know, I remember going back to Wyden and they were doing some amazing work with Chrysler. And going back, it's like, oh, we should be doing this on, you know, Facebook Live or all this kind of stuff on Instagram. And they're like, we don't actually, we can't touch that because that's with a different agency on the other side of the country and everything else. So the kind of world that marketers had created for themselves and agencies, I guess, through holding companies and everything else, like they kind of smashed the China plate apart and, you know, it was really hard work to like jam it all back, back together. together. Yeah. And yet when you're working within these tech companies, it act, they don't have that sort of, you know, territory as much, do they? Because it is the organisation. Yeah, I mean, we... So one of the things I did at Facebook was work with a lot of the global clients and their ad agencies. And we, I guess, had the lucky position and we could actually bring all these people together. So I remember going to the Home Depot, big hardware chain in the US, yeah. out in Atlanta. And um, there are all these people who work, it's a company where people work for like 15, 20, 30 years. And there are all these people in the room that had actually never met each other and they all work for the Home Depot. And it was like, they're all kind of involved in the advertising marketing world, but until we had this meeting, they'd never met. So it was kind of reflective of their, you know, like. I've actually had that experience <laughs> yeah. in uh, Asia. Yeah. In that we had a client, we got them all together, just the marketing team together, and uh, they started introducing themselves to each other because even the marketing team hadn't met. It was such a big, you know, there were 700 people in marketing. Yeah. And they'd never met each other. And it was like, oh, my God, no wonder the agencies have so much trouble because the marketers don't know each other. Oh, totally. And then they might be competitive as well, you know, like who owns the ideas, uh, who owns the budget, you know, everything else. So uh, I think it's a tough world and it seems like Sorrel was at least, before he started his new venture now, like the radical idea was building these teams for like Chanel or Colgate or Ford. It's like, let's put everyone back in the one building again. Yeah. Uh, team USA for Bank of America, or t- yeah, exactly. Uh, team that team was... America, yeah. yeah so, um, but now you're uh, apart apart from your current job uh, as global creative director at Safety Culture, and which you've just started, um, you're also bringing sort of this creative and approach and curiosity to a number of boards as well. And that's really interesting from my perspective because, you know, there's a lot of discussions about the need to have marketers on boards to to keep boards focused on growth opportunities, but also the idea of bringing creativity into the boardroom is such a great idea. How are you finding it? I'm really enjoying it. It feels um, very grown up. I could say there's a couple of times in my life where I felt like a grown up. It's like having a kid um starting a company and being on a board because there's real consequences to your decisions you know like you know hiring or firing people and funding and directions of the company and everything like that um i think you know having the pedigree of a an apple or a facebook you know got me onto the board but i do think that there's a fantastic position and role for 
creative people to play. You know, I think a lot of boards are very left brain people. You know, they're usually ex CFOs or lawyers or bankers, finance people, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, they don't necessarily think about how people, you know, might make decisions. Mm. You know, the emotional side of all that kind of stuff or the storytelling or, you know, why do people care about Nike but they don't really care about Puma or something like that, right? You know, bankers will probably have a hard time trying to work that out by the numbers or anything like that. Um, So I think we're particularly undervalued and I think it's a great way for creative people, especially, you know, if you're scared about aging out of the business, a way to add value kind of, you know, in your 40s or 50s or something like that, 60s maybe. To actually bring that uh, uh, that vision or that uh, perspective to uh, that environment. Yeah, to join a board or two. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are paying roles and to be able to add a different perspective to the, yeah, to the left brain thinkers. Um, I think we're kind of, you know, we get beaten up and maybe not as respected as we should be. And I think we should definitely have a seat at the table. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because so many people talk about the need for creative thinking, not just in advertising, but actually in business as well. You know, it's creativity that drives innovation. It's curiosity that drives innovation. It's being asked to say why not rather than why all the time is the thing that will actually drive businesses. Yeah, and sometimes it's even just simplifying things as well. You know, sometimes these people can just add more and more stuff in there or, you you know, I've been on a lot of calls with lawyers the last few weeks and just even the way they talk. And I was like, okay, well, that let's might just pair it away and get yeah, there. Right. What is the actual problem? Yeah, let's yeah. get down to the brief. You know, <laughs> let's get down to the, you know, single-minded proposition or something like that. Like, what the hell are you trying to do? And you know, Apple was very good at simplifying stuff and put a lot of time and effort into simplifying. It's actually, um, it's a lot easier to make something more complex than it is to simplify something. And the other thing is that uh, uh, these boards are not just uh, in Australia. You're, you're actually working... Uh, overseas. So I imagine the pandemic has made that uh, easier as everyone's moved to a, you know, Teams or Zoom world. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Apart from time zones. Time zones are a bit of a killer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's been a bit of caffeine involved. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think Zoom is super interesting, you know, the whole Zoom culture. I heard someone from Qantas uh, being interviewed the other day and he was saying the biggest threat to Qantas moving forward is actually going to be Zoom. I thought was, you know, the amount of travel we used to do in the US, I was on a plane every week, pretty much. And you just think about the whole ecosystem around executive travel. Um, But I do think it's an interesting time for people to potentially too, to be able to like geographically move into different areas. Like a lot of people in the US, people in the US are more scattered than they are in Australia, where we're kind of very concentrated in a few cities. But I've got friends now that are moving to like ski resorts or beach towns or everything like that. And they can still run their business or, you know, have an executive role now where they're just maybe in an office, you know, a week, a month or something like that versus, you know, 7.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. every day. Yeah, the idea that uh, in the U.S. you've either got East Coast or West Coast, you know, because I know, like you, know people that are moving to Arizona or Utah or, you know, just to get a different standard of living, you know, away from the rat race of uh, the big cities. Yeah, it's a very interesting time. It'll be interesting to see, you know, if 
maybe it does start to repopulate some of these, you know, rural towns that have been kind of, you know, losing people over the last couple of decades to, to the city if people actually start to go back the other way and maybe find a bit more land or space or balance in their life. Mm. Look, uh, I just noticed we've run out of time. Andy McKeon, it's been great catching up and terrific to have you back in Sydney. Oh, so delighted to be here. I mean, gosh, I watch the news every night and I thank the good Lord that I'm back in Australia and um, for the people in Melbourne done well you do not want to be in the US right now uh, just one final question before you go as a Silicon Valley insider any investment uh, advice you can give me mm-hmm.